0: Good morning. Well, uh, this is it. We have now come to the end of Luke's gospel in our study, so please open your Bibles to the gospel of Luke and to chapter 24. It's been a little over two years uh, since we began our study in the gospel of Luke, and uh, Kyle let me know that this would be the 82nd message uh, that we have here at Green Tree Heard in this gospel. And so we come to the, the culmination of Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And I'm quite reminded of the closing days of uh, high school for graduating seniors, um, there's conversations about all the things that they have gone through, uh, all the memories that they have shared, there's plans to do some, some final uh, things together that are traditions that they have developed over their years of studying together with their classmates, and then there's also, uh, there's also the blunt reality that they need to move on that there's something else coming and so some of those closing conversations in the last days of high school are a lot about what's next what are your plans where are you going what are you doing in the closing verses of Luke's gospel we have similar moments and things of conversation there's parts that are memories of what they have heard and learned over the last few years. There's a little bit of doing some of the things they've always done, and there certainly is a large part of what's next, what's coming. And so Luke records these closing moments to do a number of things for us, And primarily, it is meant to give us certainty that this risen Jesus is calling His disciples to the what's next. Let's read beginning in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words, that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them while he blessed them. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for this word and for all that we have heard through this gospel, and this morning would you give us eyes to see and ears to see to hear, and hearts to receive all that you want us to through your holy and authoritative word. May your spirit come and fill us in Jesus' name, amen. So in this text, we have the risen Jesus in physical bodily form coming and appearing to his disciples. For the first time since his death these men get glimpses and the physical appearance of Jesus and here Luke means for us to understand what is going on for these disciples that this encounter with the risen Jesus is meant to bring certainty where there is doubts it's meant to fill them with a surety of what has taken place so that their faith is solidified. And then they are called to continue in the mission that Jesus has begun with them. This text brings us this eyewitness account, but then it also undergirds all of that with the message and testimony of Scripture all along, that all of these things have taken place for certainty to be found. The whole of Luke's gospel was written for the purpose of certainty, knowing who Jesus is and responding in faith to carry out His mission. And so, this text for us this morning is meant to bring us a certainty. And it's meant to call from us a response. And the only appropriate response to believing the risen Jesus is to carry out His mission with joy. That's what we're to get from this word this morning, that the only appropriate response to seeing and believing the risen Jesus is to carry out His mission with joy. Let's look at this first section, verses 36 to 43, and you can see again that this is meant to bring certainty. The disciples are gathered together likely in the upper room where they had shared the final meal with Jesus just some days before. They're gathered together and it's late in the evening on the third day. These men are filled with confusion, sorrow, guilt. Their minds and their hearts are downcast their leader, this Jesus, they have followed for some time now, and their their hopes were bound up in all of what He was teaching and was doing, and here they are gathered with their expectations unfulfilled. They're disappointed in the circumstances of the previous few days. They're disappointed in themselves and how they responded to the events just a, a few days earlier these men enthusiastically confessed their their boldness that they would stick by Jesus whatever may come but now they're hanging their heads and they're in hiding because that's not what they did they have doubts They are uncertain. So Jesus comes to them, physically resurrected, in bodily form, to squash their doubts. Luke is recording for us here, giving us evidence for the whole reason why he wrote this book. If you can Cast your minds back two years and a month and a half ago when we began our study and we read those first verses in Luke, and in chapter 1, verse 4, he gives us the reason for the book, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This encounter with the risen Jesus is for certainty. Certainty, it's a hard thing to come by in our lives, isn't it? But oh how valuable it is. Do you do you sometimes find trouble in unbelief? You sometimes just struggle to have faith and and you just feel doubts clouding your thoughts doubts arising in your lives. Why do, we ha- why do we have that? Why is it that unbelief is so prevalent? It's because we live so much of our life by our own interpretations, by our own expectations. We, we, we We want to make sense of our experiences and our circumstances of life by by how we think and how we feel, by how we want it to go. And so we experience a lot of doubt and unbelief, but here Jesus comes to his disciples to give them certainty because life isn't about our expectations, and our interpretations. Life is about the unchanging plan of God. And so Jesus comes to give them new interpretation, new expectation, to quell their doubts with the truth of God's plan. So He proves Himself to them. He wants to bring their hearts peace and hope. So how does he give them certainty? By seeing, by by touching, by appearing to them, by giving them reason to believe. And we can see their response. Verse 41, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. That's, that's a verse, and you're reading through, and you're like, no, nah, I didn't read that right. Let me go back. There's, there's some, the translation's wrong. Something's not right. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. What's going on there? Luke's trying to capture the, the whirling thoughts of these men as they are drenched in doubt, and yet certainty is before them physically. Flesh and bones right in front of their eyes, and so as their minds whirl to try and catch a a hold of what is going on, they're staggering with thoughts, beginning to believe and yet wondering how can it be. It's it's almost like how unusual things happen in our lives, and we're kind of like, I I can't believe that just happened. It's not that we, we don't think it actually happened, it's we're just staggered by the reality of it. So these men, they are staggering and being filled with joy and marveling because in their seeing, in their touching, in their believing, hope is rising. And I I just love how Jesus just kind of puts an exclamation point on the end of this encounter. And I think there's there's just a bit of humor and irony in it, because these men are whirling, trying to figure out what's going on, and Jesus looks at them and goes, you got anything to eat? <laughs> I, can, I can just picture them stand, just mouths open. I mean, it makes sense. From all we know, he hasn't eaten since Thursday night, and it's now Sunday night. <laughs> He's probably hungry. But these men have spent many meals with Jesus. It's a familiar thing to them. So Jesus eats some fish and they stand, they are stunned and marveling, and he is just proving to them his physical reality, just as he said he would. He means to instill in them this growing hope and this certainty because he has a message. And he has a mission for them. He wants them to lay hold of hope and faith because he's got some things he needs to tell them. The second section, verses 44 to 49. Here Jesus gives them message and mission in order to equip and empower them for this mission. He said to them, And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus has their attention and then he preaches to them. He preaches to them in these days between his resurrection and his ascension. He instructs them with the mission of preaching the gospel to others by using the scriptures. This is a a vital connection for us to see here, that there is a connection between the witness and the Word. In these verses, Jesus undergirds all that they have experienced and witnessed with the testimony of Scripture itself. He does not leave these men merely equipped with their own personal testimony, but with biblical truth that interprets their personal testimony. All the things that they have seen and experienced, the Scripture gives testimony to and interprets how they can understand them. The Word of God gives understanding to all that they have experienced. It fills their hearts and their minds with truth for witness. Philip Ryken puts it this way Jesus knew that God does his saving work by the Word. So he went back to the same scriptures he had always preached and preached them again. Here's an example for our own evangelism, in which we should always trust the Word to do the real work of our witness. They need the Word. They need the truth. They need the testimony of Scripture. They need to be equipped by it for their mission. He equips the disciples with the Word. He does not leave them to have faith and rest in their own experience. He wants their faith grounded in the overwhelming testimony of the Word of God. So verse 45, He opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. That's what we need. All of life, it's filled with with personal experience. What we experience and, and feel and interact with in all of the circumstances of life, we are always set to interpret. Everything that goes on we interpret how we experience those things we're always interpreting all of our experience of life we interpret by our own understanding for how do we respond to these circumstances the problem is when we are left to our own interpretation of life we we shift and move in our understanding of things because that's how we're made We're emotional beings. We are constantly prone to shifting and moving by how we think, feel, and interact with the circumstances of life. But if we are grounded in the unshifting, immovable testimony of Scripture, then we can lay hold of rock-solid interpretation for all of life. These are the things I'm experiencing. These are the circumstances before me. How can I understand them and interpret them? How can I respond to them? I need to know what it means. I need to know why. So we lay hold of the interpretation that doesn't shift and move. So Jesus tells His disciples that what they have experienced, it has a rock solid interpretation, and it is grounded in what has been written. This bolsters their faith. When they see the solid testimony of Scripture give clarity and truth to life, it fills them with faith. Don't you want that? Don't, don't you need that? To have clarity in life? We need the Word of God to bring us solid interpretation. So Jesus tells them, for this mission, you need to know the Word. And then he tells them, you need to preach the message. What's the message? Verse 47 that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. The message is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The message of the gospel, it is a message about the mission of God to rescue those who are lost. It's about lost ones repenting and receiving forgiveness. What is this repentance? It's a word we've, we've heard many times before. It means to turn away, to change your mind, to turn away from former things, turn away from sin, from rebellion to God. The Bible makes it clear to us throughout its testimony that sin is rebellion against God and repentance is turning away from that. No one can be repentant of sin while still in love with sin. It's not a temporary turning, it's a change of heart and mind to no longer love the things that rebel against God, to turn away from those things. So we can't, we can't repent and hold on to a little bit. We can't turn 90%. We have to turn away all the way. Because how can we turn, while holding on to some sin, to God and ask for His mercy? He will not share His glory with another. Repentance is turning away from sin itself. Not, not just the punishment of sin. See, every, every criminal is sorry when they go to prison. Everyone grieves their wrong when they get caught and face the consequences. But true repentance is not sorrow and grief from conviction and consequences. True repentance is rather a brokenness of heart because sin is sin against the holy God. Repentance is turning away from sin because sin itself is rebellion to a God who is merciful and loving and full of grace and beautiful. Repentance is hating sin because it's against God, which is why true repentance is not just turning away only but turning toward God. We denounce the things that drive us away from God and turn to a God who is all-glorious, all-beautiful, all-loving, full of grace, and worthy of all of our hearts. There is no half-hearted repentance. God will have all of us. And when we repent, truly repent and turn toward God, the message tells us that we receive forgiveness and forgiveness in His name, in the name of Jesus, because it is only possible for us to be forgiven of all of our sin because of the incarnation, the act of obedience and the substitutionary atonement of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because of who Jesus is, and because of what He has accomplished, forgiveness is made available to every sinner who repents and turns toward God. He will not turn any away. Forgiveness of sins what grace, what amazing grace. There is not a person here this morning to which the extent of your sin is too far to be reached. There is not one here where you think, oh, but you don't know how dark my sin is. You don't know how black The stain of sin is in my life. I say to you, the blood of Jesus washes it pure. There is no one so far because of their sin that they cannot hear the cries of Calvary bidding them, come, come and be forgiven. Are you forgiven? Do you know that grace and mercy of the forgiveness of God in his name? Oh, come. Come to him. He will not turn you away. Now this message this message is it's not just for a moment of conversion. It is a message that every Christian needs every day. Right? The gospel, it's, it's to be applied to our lives again and again. When we respond to the message of repentance and forgiveness, and the Spirit does the work to change a person's heart, to take them from unbelief and to faith, and they are saved in that moment and forever. But the Christian life is a life of ongoing change right it's a a life of transformation becoming more and more like Jesus as the spirit applies the truth of these things to our hearts and to our minds and again and again we're being transformed therefore we constantly need this message we don't graduate from the class that teaches the gospel it's a class for all of life the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. J.C. Ryle speaks of it this way. He says, Happy is that Christian who keeps these two points continually before his eyes repentance and forgiveness. They are not merely elementary truths and milk for babes. The highest standard of sanctity is nothing more than a continual growth in the practical knowledge of these two points. We need this message, and we need to share this message. Jesus tells them, know the word, preach the message to who? To those who are lost, to the nations, to all of them. Jesus gives them the message to preach and tells them, go and share it to all nations. The disciples of Jesus are to be on this mission as witnesses to all the nations, starting in Jerusalem. This message of repentance and forgiveness is a message for every lost soul in every part of the world for every time in history. And Jesus calls them to start right where they are. He calls every disciple to know the word, to preach the message to everyone, and start right where you are. Every Christian is to be a witness. Every Christian is a missionary. Every Christian is a preacher, and we're called to bring this message to those who are lost, and to start right where you are." So who is right where you are? Who is it in your close circle, neighbors, family members, co-workers, in your house, parents? Oh, parents, preach this message to your kids. They need to be evangelized. They need to know repentance and forgiveness. Be faithful. Th- thank you, because I know that the parents of this church are faithful to do this. So, this mission that Jesus is passing on to his disciples, notice it is a mission that is according to the scriptures. What Jesus says in verse 44, where he says, All the things that have been written must be fulfilled. And then he opens the disciples' minds to understand that the things that are written must take place and be fulfilled. Yes, he's talking about his death. Yes, he's talking about his resurrection. But he's also talking about the mission of proclamation. He's telling them that all must be fulfilled and it is written that these things should be proclaimed to all the nations. I wonder what scriptures Jesus opened their minds to. Where did He take them? Perhaps He took them to Psalm 22. And He said, Hey friends, do you remember a few days ago when I was dying on that cross? And I cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, a little bit further along, in that psalm, do you remember that it says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you? Maybe he took them to Psalm 98 in verse 2 where it says, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Maybe you took them to the prophet Isaiah, where he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Luke picks up on what that prophet says, and Luke records for us, if you remember back in the beginning of his gospel, when the child Jesus is being presented in the temple and Simeon has the fulfillment before him of that child, and he says, Lord. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Do you see the connection again between word and witness? Jesus is Hammering this home for them that there is a pattern that we must take up, that the church is on mission to bring witness and to bring it with the word. And as we read through the book of Acts, we see this again and again in the sermons recorded there that Peter and Paul and the apostles, as they preach to the lost, they talk about what the scriptures have said, what has been written, what must be fulfilled, and they preach the word to accompany their witness. Beginning in Jerusalem, start their part of the mission in the place where it all went down, in the place where people would know these things and that could easily refute and question anything they brought. But they bring true account of the things that have taken place. Start right where you are. But he tells them, there's one more thing you need for this mission. You need to know the word, you need to preach the message, you need to know to who you're going to, but you need to be clothed with power from on high. Verse 49, we need the power of the Spirit to accompany this witnessing with the word. We know that faith comes as the Spirit Gives it. There is no lost ones that are found without the Spirit changing their hearts. The Spirit is necessary to open blind eyes and to soften hard hearts. And so he tells them wait, and the Spirit will come upon you. The Spirit of God will fill you and empower you to preach this message, and to change people's lives. Notice notice the Trinity in verse 49. Jesus says, behold, I, the Son, am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And stay in the city until you are clothed with power, with the Spirit from on high. The triune nature of God fills and upholds the mission of the gospel going forward. And notice again that this is a promise. A promise of the Father. Once again Jesus reaches back and tells them, look, Look what it says. These things will be fulfilled. The promise of the Father. Look back to the prophet Joel. He says that his spirit will come upon all who will hear this word. The witness and the word and the power of the spirit will go forward. In the final verses of Luke's gospel, we have recorded for us the the culmination, right, the completion of Jesus' earthly mission. He has accomplished all He needed to while on earth and has given His disciples all they needed while He was with them. So, He brings them out of the city, not far off, to the area of Bethany, to the Mount of Olives, He raises up his hands and he blesses them. And as he's blessing them, he goes up into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father, to reign in glory as the God-man. His ascension is the entrance into glory. Can you imagine what that scene looked like on the other side of glory? Thousands, stadiums upon stadiums filled with angels on their feet, applauding and praising Jesus, risen and now reigning in glory. He is there today. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all of history as the risen Christ. This Jesus, He is risen, He is reigning, and one day, He's returning. One day, He will break through those clouds and come again." So what's the response? We have recorded for us in the Scripture the disciples responding to all of this, and they respond with worship, with witness, and with waiting. Because Jesus is risen, reigning, and returning. The disciples respond by worshiping, witnessing, and waiting. And this threefold response is what the church, what we are called to do as well. We're to worship. Verse 52 tells us that they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem and they were in the temple blessing God. Those who believe in the risen Jesus must be continually worshiping because That's what we were made to do. Faith, belief, certainty in this risen Jesus and the the glorious reality of the gospel, it wells up in us and it overflows in worship unto God. God made you a worshiper. And when we have certainty of these things, of the reality of repentance and forgiveness of sins, then oh, may our lives ever be worshiping this God who is worthy of it. May we be a church who spends our days in worship. It's it's the only appropriate response to receiving forgiveness, to be a people gathered, worshiping. That's what makes this the best day of the week. There is no time, no place like it. The people who have miraculously by the Spirit been rescued and forgiven gather together in praise of the risen and reigning Christ. There's nothing like it. Oh, I wish tomorrow were Sunday. We get to do it all again. So the church responds with worship, and the church responds with witness. We've been given here by the risen Christ the mission that he began. The commission that Luke records for the disciples is to carry out what Jesus' mission is. And we have have the book of Acts as this response to this commission. That's, That's Luke's part two in the saga The church goes on mission, and and what's critical for us to understand is that this mission, it's not not birthed here at the end of the gospel with, with this great commission. It's not the beginning of the mission where Jesus tells them to go and to preach, and we can often think that the goal of missions is the salvation of souls. That's a part of it. But the very heart of missions is that God would be known, loved, and worshiped. That's that's what the mission is. So that people, lost ones, would come to know, love, and worship God. That's been God's mission all along. It didn't begin At the end of Luke's gospel, this mission began in Genesis 1 with the creative activity of God to make Himself known. Missions began on page 1. And so, when we are called to go on mission, we are being called to join God, in what His ongoing mission is, in revealing Himself that He would be known, loved, and worshipped. That's encouraging. That's humbling. But it's encouraging. The mission is not reliant on our ability. We're just joining God in what He's already doing. So it can fill us with confidence. It can fill us with joy to be on this mission because we're witnessing to God to bring lost ones to come. Look, know Him, love Him, worship Him. Come and see. Look what has been written. We get to join God in His mission. So we worship, we witness, and we wait. tells us in the beginning of Acts that as Jesus was ascended, these men were standing around just staring up in the sky. And two men in dazzling clothes come along. They're like, what are you guys looking at? He's going to come back in the same way that he went. So the church actively waits with great hope and anticipation. Just like kids throughout the month of December waiting for Christmas Day. That anticipation builds, and they can't wait for Christmas morning to come. So all their all their excitement, all their joy, everything is bound up in in that day getting closer and closer and closer to them. Their eyes are set on it, and it works its way back to 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 lift them up, to encourage them and to fill them. Sometimes waiting is challenging. But the joy of the day to come, it it works its way back to produce in us hope and eager anticipation. So for the Christian, for the church, knowing Jesus is returning soon should build in us a longing for that day, a dissatisfaction with this day, and a compulsion to be faithful every day. We long. For that day to come. And we know that this all that we have around us, there's something far better. Far greater. And so we're compelled in this day to be faithful because that day is coming. The book of Acts, which records the church on mission, it does not end with a period it ends with an ellipsis. You know those three dancing dots on your text message? We all know what those dots mean, right? There's, there's something else coming. I'm just waiting for something to come. Acts is the record of the mission of Jesus being carried out through his followers, empowered by the Spirit, but it doesn't end in chapter 28. It's a mission that is carried out by every follower in the church until he comes again. There's more to come. Those little dots. There's more witnessing to be done. There's more to take place. More souls to be saved. More to be added to the number. There are more lost ones to come to know, love, and worship God until Jesus comes again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for you are a God that is filled with grace and mercy and love and you have given us the message of repentance and forgiveness and you have added to the number of those who know, love and worship you and we ask for more. We ask, Lord, that you would bring more, that you would use us, that we would be witnesses joining your mission, proclaiming this message, and that you, by your Spirit, would add more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.